spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, June 21st, we're studying Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. Paul concludes his third missionary journey as he finishes his trip back to Jerusalem, even with warnings of the suffering that awaits him there. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Charles St. Ange. Pastor St. Ange serves as missionary pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Pastor St. Ange, welcome to Sharp Iron. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Pastor, tell us a little bit about your work there in Canada. What do you do at Ascension Lutheran Church? Well, Ascension Lutheran Church is one of the historic members of the old Slovak Evangelical Lutheran Church. So it was founded in Montreal um, a little over 90 years ago as a congregation of Slovak immigrants. Um, Now it's uh, really changed to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-language ministry to a very unique community in Canada's second largest city. So Montreal, for those who aren't familiar, used to be the largest city in Canada and Canada's financial center right through the 1970s when um, Quebec's separatist movement uh, really uh, had the whole province sort of move much more strongly in the direction of using the French language. Uh, Through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, English was the language of business the language of the upper echelons, if you will, and the language of business owners and managers, but French was the majority language. And so what happened was uh, a new government came in that said, you know, we're no longer going to be, as they said, hewers of wood and drawers of water in our own land. And so as Quebec made a turn much more strongly to French, um, most head offices, companies, industries, even heads of banks moved to Toronto which made Toronto the city that everybody knows today. Um, Montreal's kind of reinvented itself over the last 50 years. It's probably one of the premier um, multi-language cities in the world where French predominates, but most people in the city of Montreal itself speak English. And it is a city of immigrants with people coming from all over the world. Spanish and Arabic are actually tied for the third most commonly spoken language in the city. So at this point, Ascension's in a a neighborhood of about 30, 33,000 people in a half square mile area, very densely populated, predominantly immigrants. So 90% of the people that live in the borough were either born outside Canada or whose parents were born outside Canada. Um, Right now, the predominant groups are from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, although we have a growing number of Caribbeans. from Haiti and from the Dominican Republic and Cuba, uh, as well as people from Africa. So Ascension's ministry is really to people who are uh, non-Christian, who are from Islamic or Sikh or Hindu background. And we just finished a tremendous Pentecost weekend where we had an open house on Saturday evening with almost 50 people, uh, including kids attending from the neighborhood Uh, We did a workshop on housing issues. And then on Sunday morning, 
Uh, we had our French Lutheran Church Canada worship service uh, led by Pastor David Summers. After that, we had uh, our English language service followed by an international potluck, uh, which over uh, 45 people attended. And then we did a multi-language hymn sing, predominantly French and English with our French and English hymnals, kind of one in each hand. Um, and then we had a couple of families uh, who were Spanish speaking who had come for the first time. And so I had copies of the Spanish hymnal, pulled them off the shelves, and so was actually helping to lead the, the hymn sing in three different languages simultaneously. So that's really the ministry at Ascension. Um, it's, it's very unique, inner city, multicultural, multi-language. And I lead a, a small team of lay people uh, and one deaconess. Uh, Deaconess Emily Stoller, who are involved in ministry there. Wow, what what a what a wonderful thing to do, particularly on Pentecost to to be able to. Did you sing at the same in three different languages at the same time? We we tried different things. So my wife's <laughs> uh, a music educator, and she taught a couple of songs, one in Zulu, um, and then one oh, wow. in Hebrew. So so we got those under our belt, and then we had a list of all of the hymns that we could play that existed in both the English and the French hymnal. And sometimes what we would do is do one stanza in English, one in French. Sometimes we just say, sing whatever language you would like. So we sang uh, A Mighty Fortress in French, English, and Spanish simultaneously, which was great. Um, and then we had uh, one of our young members uh, led us in Amazing Grace, starting first in Thai. Uh, she's originally from wow. Thailand. And what was really cool is we had a number of Hindi speakers um, who were not Christian, but were invited because they were in the French class that our deaconess and one of our lay mission workers is are taking. And they said, why don't you come and find out what Pentecost is all about in our tradition? And so uh, we had both Sikhs and Hindus sitting in our sanctuary, listening to all this Christian hymnody in multiple different languages. Wow. Wow. Well, God, God continued to grant you open doors to proclaim his good news there in Quebec. That's, that's fantastic, Pastor St. Ange. So we have the privilege of studying Acts 21 together. This is, it's really a joy for me to have several missionaries here on the show. As, as we're looking at the book of Acts and we see St. Paul and his mission work, we're in Acts 21 today. He's finishing that third missionary journey. What should we know about the context as we prepare to look at these 16 verses today? Well, as with all of the missionary journeys that Paul takes um, throughout Acts, and then as we see him talk about uh, the work in the epistles, I think what really stands out to me as a missionary is that Paul never dwells over much on how many Christians there were in each place he went to. Um, there's no census anywhere in the book of Acts where they say, well, we we did really good work in Ephesus. We had over, you know, 85 people at our opening worship service. And then and then we went on to this other town, but it wasn't quite as good. We only had about 24. Um, but we're hoping that we're going to double that, you know, over the next year. There's never any language like that. What there is is a driving concern that the gospel be preached everywhere. And Paul's concern is, have people heard the message? Uh, have I preached it clearly? Have I preached it through every possible open door? Have I have I gone to every people group that the Holy Spirit has opened uh, an opportunity for me to go to? And so we see the same thing happening now in Acts 21, where we see Paul uh, making his way back to Israel after having done his best to make sure that the lands of 
um, newly named Turkey, uh, formerly Turkey, and then in Greece, uh, and then elsewhere, have heard the gospel. And that's his primary concern. All right, so he is again, as you said, back or headed back to Jerusalem, the end of his third missionary journey. We pick up the text in Acts 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Pause there. That takes us through verse 6 of the text. So, Pastor St. Ange, we get several geographical notices here as Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. Help us with a, a little bit of geography here. I know you can't draw us a map, but but help us to, <laughs> to figure out where where Paul is headed in the various notes that Luke gives us. I, I have to say, um, I am a, a map fanatic. I have been since I was very, very young. Um, I even have some maps up in my office that kind of give me inspiration. And so I'm a, and I'm a very visual person. And to be honest, it is difficult on a podcast to try and paint a picture. <laughs> so I would encourage people to, to uh, if they've got internet, to go out on Google uh, and, and do a search for Paul's third missionary journey so you can get a picture of where he's traveling. Because basically what it is, is from um, the south southwestern coast of Turkey, what's now known as uh, Turkey, um, th- from there around some of the islands that are there on the southwest tip of Turkey, around Cyprus, which is a big island in between Lebanon and Turkey, and then on to the coast of uh, Palestine, Israel. So it's a pretty much straight line journey. It starts out kind of through the islands uh, and then eventually gets gets all the way across to, to what was then called Phoenicia, the, the region of Tyre and Sidon. So this is not really a... Um, kind of evangelism stop. I liken it to as missionaries when we make our network reconnect. Uh, there's always going to be those two or three days where you've just got to get from point A to point B. And sometimes you feel bad. You're like, well, I don't have any LWML groups to visit between there. I've checked in on every church or there might just not be a lot of Lutherans in between those points or Christians to drop off and see. But you got to get there. You got you to gotta get from A to B. And that's what Paul's doing. I think the other thing that's interesting is is the we, that it's sure. um, it's not just Paul, it's Luke, the author, is including himself in this, and it's very detailed. It's very detailed. Now that, I mean, the detail, I think, fits with what we know from St. Luke, from his own description of his, at the beginning of the book of, of Luke, he talks about his, his research that he did. And when he's there for the journey, it makes sense that he would be detailed. What are some of the, the details that we encounter in the, the description of his journey here? Well, I think, um, and, and I come from a tradition that used to really downplay the, the full authority of scripture and its, its accuracy. It is good to just dwell for a minute on the fact that Paul could have simply said, and and then we left them and got on a boat and eventually we got to, to Jerusalem. But he doesn't do that. 
Um, he's very detailed about what harbor they travel from, where their midway, midway points are. I mean, um, which, which side of Cyprus they sail across um, yeah. and where they've got to transfer boats. And if you're just going to sit down and just tell a story, um, you don't have to go to that level of detail. Um, if you tell the story of Little Red Riding Hood to your kids, uh, you don't have to go through the detail. What path did Little Red Riding Hood take? And was it gravel or was it paved? And was it wide or was it narrow? Were there trees? All that matters is she's on a path. But Luke is absolutely intent on telling us this is how it happened. It actually happened this way. So the detail um, is even used by secular scholars to, to research what travel was like around the Mediterranean. So if we can trust Luke on the very mundane details of how does one get on a ship from one point to another around the Mediterranean, then when it comes to what Paul is actually speaking and accurately recording that message and the events that, that happened to Paul and Luke and to everybody as they're traveling around, we can, we can trust him. That, that he he's not going to make that up and then be so detailed on everything else. So within the details, we see the historical truthfulness of the scriptures. Even, you know, we know that the scriptures are given so that we might believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that somehow the historical details are unimportant or that they don't matter or that Luke got them wrong. In fact, he got them right. And so when we see these details, as sometimes perhaps we struggle with pronouncing names. That's sometimes my struggle as I'm reading it here on Sharper Iron, and, and sometimes not always knowing precisely where we are in the world. When we see these details, it really should give us cause for joy so that we, I mean, we see, yeah, when God recorded his word, word for us, he did it accurately, and, and we can give thanks for that. Yeah, I, I often tell my confirmation uh, classes that um, the gospel is not a story or the Acts of the Apostles that starts out, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. Um, this is all embedded in history. God acts in this world, not some imaginary world. Um, this is the same world that you and I live in. Hmm. Now, with with you being a map nerd, Pastor Saint Ange, and, and some of the <laughs> yeah. details that are here, is there is there anything in particular? I mean, I I'm looking at a map of of where. St. Paul was traveling along with St. Luke and their other companions. Are there any details that are, I mean, it is striking. He says Cyprus was on our left side, which I love that. He's looking yeah. off the boat. Oh, there it is over there. Are there any of these details that you find noteworthy to, to point out? Well, this is where you need like a sailing nerd. You really should have somebody like that <laughs> on the show. Um, I have an, uh, an aunt and uncle that have sailed extensively all their lives, um, all the way down the intracoastal waterway to the Caribbean, sailed around the Caribbean, sailed back. They've done that twice. Um, and they would be able to tell you a lot of the mechanics. But in, in general, th there were no power boats back then. You didn't have you know gas motors. You didn't have an ability to fight the tides, fight the currents, fight the wind. So you really had to go with the flow. You had to know which direction the winds were going to be blowing, when they were going to be blowing in that direction, um, when was travel going to be possible. So the reason why they go on one side of Cyprus is probably because there was no wind to be able to go the other way. Um, and the same with all the ports where they would have to stop. These would have been turning points where ships would be able to go easily from one harbor to another, um, but you would transfer then to another boat that would be able to do the longer trip across the open ocean. So part of what Paul's doing when it's in between the islands, 
uh, could use a different kind of boat. But once you get out into the open ocean, you want to have something that's a little bit more seaworthy. So, I mean, I, I'm not an expert sailor, um, but anybody that that has some sailing background would really be able to get into the into the weeds, no pun intended, of of why these parts of the water and not other parts. Sure, but even just the that simple point that when he's kind of bouncing along the coast, we should picture him in one type of boat, perhaps a little bit smaller, one that's not going to be going out into the open sea. But then when you get to Patara there in, at the end of verse one, and he finds the ship crossing to Phoenicia, that's going to be a, a little more, that's a larger boat, one that's going to be able to make that journey across the Mediterranean. Right Now, it is, it is there, then he lands in Tyre in verse three. And the ship unloads its cargo. So there, you know, it's not like Paul and Luke and their companions are the only ones on the boat. There are other people on the boat there as well. And they, they land in Tyre. They seek out disciples. What happens there in Tyre? They stay for a while, it looks like. It's, it says, or Luke says, that we stayed there for seven days, which is an interesting marker because seven days is a full week, uh, which means you're staying over a Sunday. And again, thinking like a missionary, um, when we plan our missionary reconnects to go and visit our supporters across the United States, um, I often joke that Sundays are gold because everybody wants you on Sunday. Um, Sunday's the day when everyone's going to get together. Your Bible study is going to be most full. The churches will be most full. And so pastors and people are thinking, we want you to be there um, when, when everyone's going to be there. So the fact that they were there for seven days means they probably got to see um, most of the Christian community in that place. Um, not, not just, you know, a few households, but, but maybe everybody, uh, as they gathered together for worship. So I think that's, what's interesting about the seven days, um, that it was enough time to see a number of people and enough time to get over that sea journey, which, um, sure. again, these were not, you know, big ocean going boats like we're used to now. Um, you, you took a few days to kind of get your land legs back with you and, I have to imagine that some of the disciples might well have gotten seasick. I mean, not everybody was used to to spending that much time out on the on the open ocean. That's right. Some, I mean, I'm looking again at this map, and and it's got all three of Paul missionaries' journeys on it, and they're different dotted lines to indicate which was which. It, it wasn't just a dotted line that goes across the sea, or like when you were watching a movie and you see that dotted line go from place to place. There's you know waves and seasickness and all kinds of things that are happening there. These things take time. That does help to, to bring this text to life, to, to put it into our imagination so that we picture what's going on. So they're there for seven days. They're there for church. They, they meet the Christians there in Tyre. And then there's this interesting note at the end of verse four. And this really helps connect the text to the situation and what's been happening. Luke says that through the Spirit, they, that is the, the disciples there, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, Paul is convinced in the Spirit that he must go to Jerusalem We've heard that there have been people in various towns telling him not to. Here we have it again entire, and it's happening through the Spirit. What's what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those uh, texts where it seems that there's a contradiction. Um, because earlier in Acts, in fact, just the previous chapter, Paul says to his Ephesian elders, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Um, and the constrained by the Spirit is the idea of being tied up, being sort of, you know, hogtied and at the end of a lasso and it's like, you're going to Jerusalem whether you like it or not. 
So how can Paul be being told by the Spirit that he has to go to Jerusalem and hear the disciples telling him not to go? Well, you have to look at the similarity between the two. Both seem to be getting this vision from the Spirit that things will not go well from a worldly point of view for Paul uh, in Jerusalem. Um, that it's it's going to be persecution, there's going to be opposition, and it's it's going to be really, really tough. So uh, different Lutheran scholars and Christian scholars have looked at that and said, what you've got here is the Spirit giving the same vision to everybody, but they're interpreting it differently. Um, what would one do if one saw a vision of one's life, you know, three months from now, and you're losing your job, and you've just been in a car accident, and you're um, laying up in traction and not knowing where the next paycheck is going to come from. You could interpret that, uh, which would be a natural human tendency of saying, I want to avoid this at all costs. Isn't this great? God's telling me not to drive in a car anymore and to work really, really hard to stay in my job. Paul seems to have really grasped the message of the cross, where Jesus says to Peter, I'm, I'm going to be dragged before the Sanhedrin and I'm going to be persecuted by the chief priests and the elders and the government is going to sentence me to death and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter turns around, now it goes to, to, to Paul's position, to the disciples' position with Paul. Peter takes on that role and says, oh, far be it from you, O Lord. Uh, you know, th that can't happen to you. And Jesus is like, no, this, this has to happen to me. So you're seeing the same thing. And now you're seeing it as, is this something to be avoided or is this what's going to happen so God's preparing me in advance? Paul says, I'm seeing the message of the cross in advance so that I'm prepared. The disciples here that are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, I think are a little bit like Peter and saying, but Paul's this great missionary and he's this great teacher and he, he's done so much of bringing the gospel to all these different countries. We, we can't let him go to Jerusalem and just let it all end there. Mm. So it's this insight into the fact that God can um, give us a vision of things and how a, a theology of glory, of believing that God will, will never let bad things happen to us and that everything will work out well, would make us interpret that vision as something to be avoided. Whereas the message of the cross and our understanding that we will all have crosses to carry and there will all be times uh, when we're going to be called upon to witness, um, that vision is simply a preparation. It's like we know this time is going to come and we'll be ready for it because we know the Lord will already be there. I'm reminded of Paul's or Saul's call, his conversion back in Acts chapter 9, where, where Jesus is talking to Ananias, preparing Ananias to receive Saul. And, and he tells Ananias that Saul, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And, and it really seems that Paul has taken that to heart as he is being prepared to go to Jerusalem. The other, the other thing that comes to mind with what you were saying is, is something that recent guests have also been sharing with me that in, in this part of Acts in particular, you, you start to see how Paul's own life begins to 
mirror what happens to Jesus. And again, particularly in Luke's gospel yes. and, and what you said about, uh, you know, what you said about Peter there uh, telling, telling Jesus, you're not going to, this isn't going to happen to you. I mean, this really seems like Paul's doing something similar here and this will yeah. come through again later in the text. But, you know, I mean, Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem and spends this long time traveling there. Here we've got Paul sort of having his face set toward Jerusalem, and he's spending his time traveling there. People are trying to, to dissuade him. And just like Jesus wouldn't let people deter him from his course, neither will Paul. And and this is where this helps me with what you said at the very beginning. It, for Paul, it's all for the sake of, of preaching the gospel. He, he knows he's going to preach the gospel, and that's why he won't let himself be distracted from where he's headed, even when there are people with, I think, good intentions. You know, Paul, we don't want you to to suffer. He won't let that dissuade him from going where he needs to go to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. And it's this idea that um, it's calling forth faith. Do we trust that God will be with us in every circumstance? And that when even, even when things happen that are unpleasant to us or that we maybe really wanted to avoid... Do we have the faith to, to know that God will be with us in those things and use them for his purposes, even if the world and our own sin and the devil mean them for evil, um, God is going to prepare to work good through them and to proclaim the gospel through them. That's that's a really important message of Acts, that with, with all the, every time something terrible happens, a shipwreck or imprisonment, it's used as a way to preach the gospel. Yeah, and and this will be the result as well for Paul. He goes to Jerusalem, he'll preach the gospel there, and as we will see, the Lord will send him from Jerusalem elsewhere to preach the gospel on to Rome. But we're going to pick that up later, and we need to take our break here on Sharper Iron. We are studying Acts chapter 21 with Pastor Charles St. Ange. We will be right back. Please stick around. Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, June 21st. We're studying Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16, with Pastor Charles St. Ange. He serves as a missionary pastor at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Pastor St. Ange, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. He's traveled along the coast of the Mediterranean across with Cyprus on the left. He's landed in Tyre. There, there are people who are telling him, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to suffer there. Paul does continue his journey. He departs from them. They've prayed together there on the beach, just like he left the Ephesian elders in Miletus with a, a prayer and that departure at the ship. Seems the same thing happened in Tyre, and his journey continues. We pick up the text in verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, 
but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. That takes us to the end of our text today through Acts 21, verse 16. So, Pastor St. Ange, when we get to verse 7, they leave Tyre. It looks like they bounce down the Mediterranean coast a little bit before they arrive at Caesarea. And then we encounter there a familiar name, Philip the Evangelist. Tell us a little bit about what happens there in Caesarea. Yes. So, Paul is meeting up with one of the seven, it says. And this makes us uh, go back to Acts chapter 6 and be reminded of the time when the 11, now the 12 uh, apostles, were trying to look after all the different widows and making sure that they were shown the mercy of Christ, as we would say, as part of the work of the church. And we're spending so much time doing that, that they were distracted from their ability to preach, to lead worship, uh, and to do their uh, carry out their responsibilities as apostles. And so in Acts chapter six, verse five, the apostles or verse four, the apostles say, we're going to ask you to pick seven men that you trust that can help carry out these responsibilities. And Philip is one of the seven that's then chosen. And most of these seven are Greeks. Um, They're people from outside of uh, their names that are basically not Hebrew names, which most of the disciples are. So you've got this overlap now of uh, Greeks who are now working alongside Jewish apostles. Philip is the same evangelist who encounters the the eunuch uh, from Ethiopia, uh, one of the high officials of the Ethiopian government who is returning from Jerusalem and was reading the prophet Isaiah, but didn't understand who it was about. And it was Philip who led him to see that it was about the good news of Jesus Christ which of course led the Ethiopian eunuch to be baptized. So we have somebody who has um, kind of missionary credentials, um, not an apostle, but definitely somebody who preached the gospel. And this is the Philip that they are staying with. So he is staying in, in another Greek area of um, that part of the Fertile Crescent, the Holy Land, um, as the disciples and Paul and Luke are making their way to to the more Jewish areas, and of course the Jewish capital city, Jerusalem. Yeah, Philip in, in Acts chapter 8 was bouncing around quite a bit, it seemed. He was in Samaria uh, for a little while too, preaching the gospel there before the Lord you know, took him then and sent him to, as you said, the, the road where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. And then after that encounter, the Lord sent him somewhere else and, and took him later. And, and we did, looking back in Acts chapter 8 now in verse 40, it does say that Philip, he went around in various towns until he came to Caesarea. And that is where where Paul encounters him here as well. And again, I, sh- I should say we, Luke is there also. So right. Paul and his companions are there with Philip the Evangelist. As you've mentioned, you know, in Acts 6, they're usually called deacons. It's striking to, to see him now labeled an evangelist. But as you said, that fits perfectly with what he has been doing, what we know of him from Acts chapter 8. So he, he stays, he, or he, Philip the evangelist welcomes Paul and his companions into his house where he had four unmarried daughters in verse nine and they prophesied. And then of course, Luke introduces them in verse nine and then leaves them behind entirely. Like, Wait a second, Luke, I want to know more. 
but we have. Tell us more night. about the four unmarried daughters. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, what do we need to? I mean, it's it's one of those notes where Luke just says it and then he moves on and doesn't say anything more. It's one of those places in the book of Acts where it just kind of leaves us scratching our heads a little bit. What what do we make of that note in verse nine? Well, if I could lean into my experience as a missionary again, um, what I have found to be true in my own work, in the work of my colleagues, and if you look throughout history, it's true there as well. Um, The church never really leads the mission charge. (laughs) We might think we are. We might think, you know, we're a really mission-minded church and look at the great mission work that we're doing. We're doing this, we're doing that. Generally, what's happening is we're trying to catch up to to what the Lord is already doing. And the Lord is the one who's pushing us to catch up. So um, if you look at one of the the main themes of the early part of Acts is this idea that the the apostles are in Jerusalem and uh, preaching in Jerusalem, and there's lots of converts and they're establishing uh, Christian worshiping communities, but they're not leaving. They're they're stuck in Jerusalem. <laughs> and um, yeah. you have to have this intense persecution come across Jerusalem before people sort of move out of there and into Antioch. And it sort of forces people to get out. Paul is kind of kicking and dragging the apostles to get out of Jerusalem as well. And it's almost like they're just happy that he is the missionary to the Gentiles and he's the one doing all the traveling while they get to stay behind. But Paul's like, look, look at the Old Testament. This is what happens when Messiah comes is that we need to take this message out to the rest of the world and we need to get out there and proclaim this. So in that same vein, um, we, we as Lutherans have a long established tradition of how we understand ministry happening. And for congregations that exist, we have this down to a fine science. We send young men to seminary. They get their Master of Divinity degree. They're certified for ministry. The council presence meets. There's a list of churches looking for pastors and they all get called and they go and serve those churches. And that we've got down. What happens with mission? What happens in a city where, where there isn't anybody? Um, where there is no Lutheran church, we kind of struggle a little bit. And all churches that are well-established struggle this with this. We're not quite sure how to do that, um, much less a country where there really is an established Christian church. But what you will find is that the Lord sort of makes it happen. People rise up who say, you know what? I'm going to go to India and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. And then the church has to catch up and say, well, really, we should be sending a pastor then to make sure that we have the sacraments properly administered. And we better hurry up and do that. And we we find that there's a need for uh, mercy work when we get there. We find that we're not just dealing with people's souls. We're dealing with people that are struggling with um, issues of body, issues of housing, issues of livelihood, issues of food. And just like the seven deacons, we need to have people that will help wait on tables and demonstrate the mercy of Christ in the neighborhoods where we're working so that we can then come alongside as pastors and proclaim the gospel. Evangelists have an essential role in a a lot of growing churches where the pastors are still being trained to go in and lead a church, but you've got men that are already going out and preparing the way. They're sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith. And then the pastors sort of catch up and say, okay, so we're going to baptize and we're going to organize people and we're going to have the Lord's Supper. So the Lord is always super generous with his gifts. He pours out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost on young men, on young women, on old 
men and old women, and all of them are going out and sharing this good news about Jesus. And that's, I think, what's happening with Philip. It's what's happening with his daughters, is God is making sure that the word of the gospel goes out. And then, of course, Paul and people like him come along and say, all right, so we got to train some elders. We, we got we to gotta look after people now that they've heard this gospel, that they would not lose it, that they would not lose that first love. So this is a really good example, I think, of, of how missions works. Sometimes you arrive in a place and there have already been people that have been sharing the gospel and you're like, okay, so now let where do we take it from there? Hmm. I think that's a really helpful explanation of that one simple verse. And and it certainly, I think, helps us to avoid a number of pitfalls with, with a verse that's like, oh, tell me more, but there's not. You're letting the, the clear text of the scriptures, you know, inform something that's a little less clear. And I, it really fits very well with what else you see in the book of Acts. As, as you were talking, I was reminded of what happens in Ephesus at the end of Acts chapter 18, when Paul leaves Ephesus, or he doesn't doesn't stay in Ephesus, he, he goes, he finishes the second missionary journey before he comes back. And while Paul's absent there in Ephesus, you have uh, Achilla and Priscilla who are there, and they've they've learned from Paul, and then Apollos shows up in town. And, and apart from the Apostle Paul or Pastor Paul, you have Achilla and Priscilla really take Apollos under their wing, and and you really you see the work of the church happening, even when the apostle Paul's not there. And and as you said, it's like, and you know, I mean, Paul's been there briefly, but he says, no, I gotta I gotta go for now. I'll hopefully come back later. But you see the work of the church continue there in Ephesus, even when Paul's not there. And then of course Paul comes later, and he spends a long time in Ephesus. But it's it's like something similar is happening here in Caesarea with Philip and his four daughters. The Lord fulfilling what he did on Pentecost, continuing to allow the spread of the gospel happening. And now here's Paul, and we don't find out much of what he does there in Caesarea, at least not with the church. But I, anyway, I just appreciate the way that you put that, Pastor St. Ange, because I really think it does help us to interpret this in a, a helpful way. And as you said, catch up to the work that the Lord's already doing, even when we're not there. And the the Acts 18 passage is fantastic. I love the way that, that Luke records that um, while, while Apollos was preaching the way of the Lord accurately, Aquila and Priscilla taught him yet still more accurately mm-hmm. <laughs> how to proclaim it. Uh, your whole show is called Sharper Iron. There, there's never a time when any of us, pastors or Christians, can say, all right, I made it. Like, I now, I now understand all things. There's always the, the couple in the church or the family or the, the individuals that, that help sharpen each other in Bible study and conversation. Um, when we're reading the, the scriptures together, that might even push back against the pastor in a sermon and make him really think about uh, the text. Um, the Lord is working through all those things to ensure that his gospel is preached as accurately as possible. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think this is a, a helpful text so that pastors and parishioners or pastors, church workers and parishioners, so that they don't work against each other, or maybe in the, you know, the spirit that Jesus teaches his disciples to avoid against, you know, who can be the greatest, but rather seek to serve each other, all all in service of the proclamation of the gospel. Again, this this one verse, which sometimes like, wait a second, we don't want to, we want to watch out for the errors. Well, let's let's see the positives of what the Lord's doing there in Caesarea through Philip through his daughters. And, and now Paul is, is there as well. 
It's something that a lot of other churches recognize and that we've tried to model in Montreal that, um, of course, mission work really can't happen without the office of the ministry, the pastor, um, someone who can bring people in through baptism, feed them with the supper, pro- make sure the word's proclaimed accurately. Um, but but they can't be alone. Um, there's just too much to do. <laughs> and so That's having right. a deaconess who can show the love of Christ to the people in the community, having even lay mission workers who are out showing hospitality in the community and inviting people into their homes and constantly finding a way to meet more people and, and members of the church who just through their daily vocations of accountant and garbage collector in some cases and construction workers um, are showing good citizenship and good Christian values in their community. All of that works together and every part is needed. No part's greater than another. Um, and, and in fact, when one part is missing, the body really hurts. And that's when you turn to God in prayer and say, Lord, give us the gifts that we need. Now, there in Caesarea, in verse 10, after Luke leaves the the matter of the four unmarried daughters who prophesied, we meet again a prophet from Judea named Agabus. We met him back in chapter 11. And here we come back to that conversation we had earlier about whether or not Paul goes to Jerusalem, what's going to happen here. Uh, What does Agabus come down from Judea to tell Paul? Yeah, and it's more than the telling. It's it's also the doing. It's so classic Old Testament prophet, where I'm not just going to tell you words. I'm I'm going to give you like a sermon illustration. I'm actually going to take my belt and and I'm going to bind Paul up by feet and hand and say, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." This is how the Jews of Jerusalem are going to bind the man who owns his belt. Um, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. Now, what's very interesting, and you picked up on it, and it's it goes to this idea. He doesn't say whether this is good or bad. Yeah. He just says, this is what is going to happen. And in the same way, um, Jesus, you know, simply matter-of-factly tells Peter, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. Peter puts the natural sinful human interpretation on it, which is, well, that's terrible, Jesus. We can't have you be, you know, be punished like that and crucified. So Paul, in the same way, is listening to all this and going, yeah, I, I know this is what's going to happen because this is what happens to, to anyone who dares confront the authorities and powers and, and cosmic uh, dominions over this world mm-hmm. and announce to them victory in Christ and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name is, is people will be opposed to it. Um but the rest of the people, including Luke, kind of fall for it. They become Peters again and say, no, 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 no but Paul, you can't do this. Um, Paul, and, and this happens a lot in the epistles where Jesus goes for the jugular because he can, because he's the son of God. You know, get behind me, Satan. Paul says, you know, why, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Um, for I am not ready, ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem. Uh, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? It's a lot like Jesus at the, the final discourse, the Last Supper, where he's talking to the disciples and says, why? If you really understood all this, you, you wouldn't be weeping. You'd be rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. Um, but but here, Paul is as like a like a gentle father trying to get them and say, you're looking at all this like this is terrible. But this all serves the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. 
how can Paul be so confident with, I mean, with like, he's going to die or he thinks he might die. He knows he's going to be imprisoned. Why, why can Paul be so confident in the face of that? Well, this is the whole crux of the Christian faith, no pun intended, the cross and the resurrection. Um, this is what the Christian faith is all about. There is um, it's an unfortunate situation back in my wife's hometown where a number of people ended up having to leave the church. And, and there was bad teaching that was going on in the church. They went to a, a different Lutheran church where they had two fantastic pastors. And um, one of those who left and who's been an active part of this new church is, is near death right now. Um, he's been suffering from cancer for a long time. And he told me when the pastors came to visit, he says, you know, when we were at this other church, we were hearing this and hearing that and how we had to do this for Jesus. And we had to do that for Jesus. And we had to make this commitment and do those things. He says, I have been so strengthened by the message you've been proclaiming of the, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the pastor looked at him and said, really, pastors have one job to prepare you for death. And that really is our job. That is what the gospel ultimately does. If people say they're preaching the gospel and they mean it, then the people are being prepared in, in season and out of season for their deaths. Um, that death is the wages of sin. It's going to come. It cannot be avoided. But we don't look at it as this horrible enemy. We look at it as an enemy that is going to be defeated in the end and that we will pass through it to an eternal life with Christ. It's still an enemy. We, we don't look at death and, you know, kind of jeer at it and pretend like it's not a, a roaring lion like Satan's depicted by Peter. Um, it, it's not something that we court. I don't think Paul is being fatalistic here and just saying, you know, I, I can't wait to die. <laughs> um, but there is that moment where you say, this is what life comes to at some point is eventually death does come. And when that moment comes, we know it's been prepared for by our Lord, and we're not going to look at it as uh, this, this horrendous thing to be avoided. Jesus you know, told the apostles, you're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. You're going to bear witness to them and the Gentiles. Um, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious because the words will be given to you to say in the case of the apostles by the spirit. In our case, the apostles' words, which came through the spirit, which we learn. With it, thinking about your your work as a missionary and this back and forth between, you know, on the one hand, everybody knows what's going to happen there to Paul and you've got these differing interpretations. How does this kind of conversation, does it happen in, in mission work? And how does, how does Paul's response provide strength in that kind of situation? Well, we are um, in, in the province of Quebec, we're dealing once again with a situation of a, a language group being singled out for kind of opposition. In this case, it would be English. And so a new law went into effect a few days ago um, that will severely limit the ability of people to and businesses to function in English to the extent that civil rights have been suspended. So if the government wants to walk into a business, say, unlock your cell phone, I want to see all your files, I want to see all your records and see what's in English and what's in French, you have no recourse to the courts. Um, there's not even a need for a warrant. Now, 
a lot of people are panicked about this. And so this is a, a grievous violation of rights. And we are an English church. What's going to happen to our ministry? There was even a point in time where it looked like the government was going to make it illegal to teach English as a second language, which would, of course, impact a lot of our mission work uh, that we do in Montreal. So you can look at that and say, oh, that's, you know, Paul's going to be bound in Jerusalem. This is terrible. We've got to either leave Montreal or we've got to, you know, panic and, and throw our arms up in the air. Or do you do like Paul and say, well, this is this is where we've been called to minister. Satan's going to be very creative in finding ways to stop it. Um, and our job is to be faithful with the gospel. And Jesus will find a way for us to do that. And so we are, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to continue telling people that the Lord of all things is really Christ, that he has defeated death on the cross, that people can live without the, the weight of a guilty conscience for their sins because it's been taken away and without a fear of death which is what really is driving a lot of our societies that um, death becomes so fearful um, that we will do anything to avoid it. Um, rather than saying there are times when life calls for sacrifices, um, the second world war, people got called up in the draft. Um, what if they had all said that that might mean we're going to die? The reality was they knew that and they did it anyway. Um, and sometimes that happens. So I would say as a missionary, um, we try and look at any of these circumstances that, that others might look at and say, well, this, this is the end for us and say, all right, why is the Lord put us here at this time? And how do we go about doing the one thing that we're called upon to do, which is to proclaim the gospel? Hmm. Yeah. And, and it seems that Paul's brief speech there in verse 13 brings those with him to that same conclusion, at least to recognize God's will will be done. And they, they pray for that. They pray for that. Now, our text wraps up with finally Paul getting to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem in verse 15. Some of the people there from Caesarea go with him, and they stay at—we get another name, and I don't know if I pronounced it correctly, Manasin, or maybe it's just a silent M, of Cyprus, who's an early disciple. Any significance to his mention there? I— I'm not really sure. I didn't come across one, except that what I would say is that Acts, like a lot of the epistles and even the Gospel of John, are really big on dropping names. And part of what that does is it builds community. Um, anyone who's reading these epistles and knows Nassan or Manassan, uh, how we pronounce his name, are like, oh, yeah, that's uh, Paul stayed with him. Um, good example of this is. Uh, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, who writes a church history and talks about Papias, who was a successor to the generation of the apostles, and said, whenever there was one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection that came through town, I went to talk to them. And he lists who he spoke to about that. And he's not doing that to brag. He's not doing that to say, well, you know, I knew John before he wrote his gospel. He's, he's saying, I knew these people and you know me, so we're all bound together in this message about a crucified and risen God who has done these things for us. So I think Nassen or any of these people we come across, I mean, certainly you can do a big study and see what you can learn about that person. The case of Nassen, there isn't that much there. But really what it's saying is the importance of us, like you, Pastor Timothy, and me, Pastor Charles, in Texas and in Canada, speaking with each other and other people listening to us around the world and in the United States, that we are all in one body and we have all become partakers of the one message. Yeah. I, I sometimes I, I liken these names to 
in a church bulletin where you see all the servants for, you know, who's the acolyte, who's the usher, who's the elder. And, and maybe when I'm visiting a church, I don't know who they are, but the Lord knows who they are. And they're a part of that body there. And so they're a part of the same body as, as I am. And, and so is you. And, and so when we come across a name like this, maybe we don't know much, but he's a part of the same church with, with all, all who follow Christ. It, it really, it, so even when we don't know it or don't know how to pronounce it, it's a, it's a joy to see that. Yeah. I like that, that it is kind of like the names in the bulletin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pastor St. Ange, with just about a minute here, help us to, to wrap things up. The section of Acts 21, what's the good news for us here? Well, the good news is that no matter what might face you in your own personal Jerusalem, the Lord has already prepared uh, your statements, your work, everything in advance. You are walking in the spirit um, and that whether we find ourselves in good times or in bad times, um, the Lord brings the gospel out of that. And so whatever situation we walk into on your lips should be the good news that by Jesus's death and resurrection, the world has been saved. Our consciences have been cleansed and we have eternal life to look forward to. Pastor Charles St. Ange serves as missionary pastor in Montreal, Quebec at Ascension Lutheran Church there, helping us today with Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. Pastor St. Ange, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. God bless you all. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts 21, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.